Hi, I'm Julie Ross. And I'm Gregory Abbey. And you're listening to the Parenting Horizons podcast. Julie is a longtime parent educator and counselor. And Greg is an actor, writer, and director, and more importantly, a parent just like you. Through conversations covering a range of different topics, challenges, and roadblocks, we hope to give you a few of Julie's tools that might just help make parenting a little bit easier. And look, nobody's perfect, and parenting is challenging to say the least. But with a few skills under our belts, we just might be able to be good enough parents and enjoy the journey and our children a little bit more in the process. Hi, I want to welcome everyone back to the Parenting Horizons podcast. Julie Ross, how are you feeling today? I'm doing pretty good. The weather has has changed enough here in New York to be mild and pleasant. Yes, it's definitely shifted. <laughs> for change. Yes, my emotional resonance for sure. Um, so, <laughs> you know, we've had a string of great guests and we have another one today. Um, and, you know, Julie and I did a couple of episodes around Are the Kids All Right? There's a lot going on coming out of the pandemic. Uh, kids, kids have always struggled, but it seems like there's been an excess of struggle over the last couple of years, a lot going on with kids. And we're lucky enough today to have Dr. J.J. Kelly, who is a licensed clinical psychologist. She's a CEO. She's a best-selling author. And most importantly, she's an emotional intelligence skills training expert, which She's going to explain to us what that means. Dr. Kelly, thank you for being here. Can you just talk a little bit about how you got to where you are now and the work that you do? Yes. Thanks for having me. Good job with the intro. That's thank a mouthful. <laughs> I got with it down. EQ, emotional intelligence stuff. Uh, okay. How'd I get to where, you know, I think to some extent you ride the horse the way it's going, huh? Like mm. whatever, yeah. whatever <laughs> resonates with you. You know, I learned, I learned what DBT dialectical behavior therapy was, uh, I mm. think in 2003 and immediately was like, okay, I need to learn this. I got somebody in to teach it. I was teaching it by the end of 2004 and have been doing it ever since. So uh, for people who don't know. Yeah, like, yeah. So I, yeah. I know a little bit. So like, yeah. can you clarify what that means? What DBT stands for? Yeah. And is that something you use with kids in your practice? Yes, I definitely do. Um, you know, I've given it my own flavor. I call it the get real program. <laughs> Being authentic, calling out bullshit, that kind of thing. But it is strongly based in the foundation of DBT. So dialectical behavior therapy, even though sometimes I say diabolical just because that's funnier. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, and, you know, it brings everybody's anxiety down. Sure, a the, bit I'm sure the kids love that. Yeah, yeah. So um, dialectics is just the Venn diagram, two seemingly opposing things existing at the same time in an integrated harmony. So it hmm. seems like a paradox. They seem like opposites, but the idea is when people get anxious, they push everything to black and white. Fear makes mm. everybody go to black and white. When right. the truth of it is, is that everything is gray. Mm. So right. we, tr you know, where those two circles intersect is the gray and everything's gray. So I try to help people manage their fear with the natural anxiety that comes with the unknown. 
and just normalize all that and get, you know, I was going to say get real again. I'm not trying to plug my thing. I just say it all the time. Like, Like, you can have opinions, even strong ones. I have very strong opinions and they can be changed. So let's say, so if you have a child that comes to you that's struggling with anxiety, what do you mean when you, when you talk about the gray area? So you help them, it's not all good or not all bad. I mean, I'm someone who struggles with my own. I Listen, I'm we 51. Yeah, and I still struggle with anxiety and I still struggle with fear. And I understand that, that feeling of it, feeling all consuming and so important and gigantic. So- what do you what do you do? Like, what would you talk about with kids to kind of help them? I guess it's manage it because you can't it's never going to disappear. It's right. never going to go away. Is That's that right. the idea? That's right. And we're not you know, I teach people how to manage their emotions, not so they don't have them, hmm. but so they can have the full emotional experience that comes with life if you're dealing with it authentically. And then you can manage it so that you still behave in a way that matches your values. You're still in alignment with your values. So you're not like reactively creating messes and then creating shame that comes with impulsivity usually. So what, how we start to answer your question, how we start is validation of the emotion. What are you scared of? I'm scared and anxiety, depression, you know, these things have gotten so medicalized Right. That it's yeah. a very different feeling in the body to say, I'm scared versus I'm experiencing anxiety. You know, like <laughs> right, right. it sanitizes it. And that isn't really what's going on inside. So there's something of a inoculation to our own emotional experience to our own detriment. So fear is something that's uncomfortable and we have to accept that fear exists in order to manage it. But what do we do instead? We're scared. It's uncomfortable. So we're like, not happening. Right. We put it to a black or white to some sort of conjured certainty and it's bullshit. And we somewhere in us, we know it's bullshit. And so that causes shame. Then we got to hide the shame so nobody sees it which causes anxiety, you know, and now you're in that shitty washing machine situation with the fear and shame. So uh, so I'm curious, how do you see that fear and shame cycle manifesting behaviorally? Oh my God, so many ways. However, um, culturally in the Bay Area, it's intellectualization is what it is. New Yorkers do that too. Really smart <laughs> educated people they go right to the head they divorce themselves from the bottom half which houses the heart and the feelings and they're like yeah but yeah but yeah but and it's like you can make a beautiful rationalization for anything it's still bullshit and then the smarter you get i mean even my advanced students who have been doing this for a very long time it's like their bullshit gets more sophisticated too, as their skill set gets more sophisticated. So we call it the gremlin. Rick Carson's Taming Your Gremlin is just like that externalization of worry thoughts and ego. And, you know, it's your gremlin's job to screw you over and make your life shitty. So all the worry thoughts that come and it's like, 
well, yeah, but you could do this and this, and you don't have to validate your feelings. You could just, it's no big deal. Bury it, bury it, bury it. Right. Your gremlin gets more sophisticated at how to screw you over as you get more emotionally (laughs) intelligent. So there's that balance as well. But they have so much ego strength and resilience by this point that we can laugh at it as we problem solve. And I Go ahead, please. No, I was just going to say, so is it about them becoming friends with that gremlin a little bit and that that negative voice, that critical voice? or battling back not letting that not letting it swallow them up i think it's a for us it's more of a um embracing the absurdity of the gremlin and finding a way to laugh catch it and laugh at it oh of course that's what my worry thoughts are that's what my worry thoughts almost always are and like if you can get to the funny Hmm. even with very serious things there is an absurdity to some of our, particularly our willful actions, the ones we we know don't help us, yet we impulsively engage in. We know they create messes, yet in that moment, we don't know what else to do but fall back on old stuff. We know that it doesn't work. That's a transition that takes a minute while you're learning the skills. Your toolbox isn't full yet. So you experience distress, you go back to the old stuff that you know doesn't work, it bites you in the ass again. Like, that's funny. That's ultimately a little bit funny. And we all do it. So there's like a normalizing of some of the absurdity of life as a vehicle to detaching from it and being more of an observer of it. So if there's a little distance from it, then we have a better shot of making a more mindful decision of how to behave next time. And is that the idea of the DBT? It's like kind of helping kids to f- understand what's going on in that moment. I mean, I I have it with myself when I wake up at three in the morning and suddenly my mind is racing that I literally have to say to myself, Greg, it's three in the morning. This is not happening right now. You can right? go back to sleep. This is it, that gremlin is kind of taking yes. off on a run. And I have to literally tap myself on the shoulder and say, no, 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 buddy, look where you are. You're in your bedroom. It's yes. three in the morning. Is that the idea? So that is step two in our model. That's the problem solving piece. You know, you're coping yourself. You're trying to regulate your own emotions. Step one is always validate the emotion. And that can be simply naming it. Sure. Rec- recognition. Yes. And you don't discount it. You know, you might coach yourself out of it in step two, but you don't do the no big deal thing first. Right. Because that's like the repression, bury it, and then it leaks out some other way. I mean, mm-hmm. it it is not a long-term solution for, for those of us who wake up in the middle of the night with worry thoughts to be like, knock it off. You know, like getting <laughs> right. frustrated with ourselves <laughs> for our own, you know, fear and whatever. Um and we all do it. We all, why am I not over this yet? I did the work on my parents. Damn it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, I like that because I mean, well, to me, you're right. Cause that's another, it can become another piece of, of, of beating yourself up. If you that's skip right. the, the piece of like, these feelings are, are real, Valid. you know, just for yeah. having them. Not all your thoughts are that definitely your behaviors aren't. But all of your emotions, all of our emotions are valid just because we feel them. 
So then is it kind of reality testing with the kids sometimes when you I think work? that that is built into everything that I do is reality testing and normalizing and uh, resilience building. But what can what can parents do? So I understand like in a professional setting, like if mm-hmm. a child comes to you like that all makes sense and you're trained and, and can can work with a kid one on one. But is, but is there anything a parent can do if, if it's not to a point where like maybe they they need, you know, uh, consistent therapy or something? Mm-hmm. What can a parent do in those situations? Well, it sounds like I mean, and Julie talks about this all the time is validate, right? That That's easy. Yeah. And a really basic way to do that is <sighs> if everybody in the world just named their emotions and built their vocabulary around their emotions and validated their emotions before the problem solving, it would transform how we interact with each other. But, but to answer your question very specifically and practically, I put my, not my, it's the DBT emotions sheet on my website just as a resource, print out the emotions sheet, put it on the fridge and start normalizing the family, asking each other, how do you feel right now? You could do this with three-year-olds tantruming. Hmm. You can do this with pissed off teenagers. You can do this with your spouse. And by the way, I feel like you're being an asshole is not a feeling. Not a feeling. <laughs> right. But it's a exactly. Uh, feelings are happy, sad. You know, I think shrinks of you got to use the feeling words. People to be like, I feel statements, but you can't just put everything you want after that. It's an emotion comes after the word feel, not like or that. An emotion word. Well, Julie, oh. we, we've talked many times about you and I feel like, that- we're, no, I, I was just saying to Julie's talked about this so many times. And I feel like Dr. Kelly's saying something that you've always talked about too, is that sort of recognition of feeling first and foremost, right? Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, and, and I think it's not so easy for parents to do, <clears throat> you know, Dr. Kelly, I work exclusively exclusively with parents I don't work with their children mm-hmm. and it I find that it is so hard for them to just name their child's feeling or acknowledge their child's feeling and I think the reason that it's so hard is is twofold I think first of all they get con- parents get confused and think that when they're naming the feeling they're condoning the behavior right. exactly. yeah. that's going on you know, in association with that feeling. Um, And I also think the, another reason that parents fail to, to acknowledge feelings is the same reason that they fail to acknowledge feelings in themselves. They go right to that step two. Let me problem solve. Let me problem. I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I can fix this. I know the solution. I'm, you know, 40, 50, 60 years old. I, I got this. Yeah. There is a myth that, to name the emotion makes it worse or more intense. Mm-hmm. And yeah. The opposite and that's ridiculous. True. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. you say, I'm afraid. People are like, I don't want to be afraid. You know, there's like, that makes me weak. And they have all kinds of judgments about fear or whatever. Um, and even if they're not judging the crap out of themselves, they're still probably afraid to name the fear because they're just afraid of the fear 
increasing once they say it. Mm-hmm. But try this because once you try it, you will get your own data that it actually brings you closer to baseline. Maybe not to your baseline, but at least it gets you a little lower where you can think to problem solve. What do I usually do for myself when I'm afraid? Three mm-hmm. deep abdominal breaths or take a walk or whatever your problem solving methods are. Mm-hmm. You can't think when you're that emotionally activated. So the naming of the feeling, if that's all you can remember in the moment, brings you a little closer to baseline in order to mindfully and effectively problem solve. But I do, yeah. I want to address that authority thing with parents. Like they are losing ground or they're agreeing with their kids if they validate. I validate yeah. all day long and ain't no way I'm agreeing with more than <laughs> half of the teenagers things that they're talking about. So right. you can validate another person, meet them where they are. Do not say but after, say and yeah. so that you're not invalidating the feeling. You know, I see you're, I see you're angry. And what do you want to do about it? I see you're angry. And is this a, you're going to vent or you want some problem solving? And parents Mm -hmm. have to manage their own fear because they're seeing someone they love in distress. We all do this. We see someone in distress and we uh, unintentionally do the worst thing, which is try to tamp it down. Try to make it go away, which invalidates the person that we love. We don't provide any space for them to feel their feelings because it makes us uncomfortable. How narcissistic is that <laughs> normalized nice. in society? That sucks. And the person, yeah. they both feel the miss that mm-hmm. happens, whether they speak about it or not, something in them goes, well, fuck. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's like you said, I, exactly. I, I think, yeah, this idea that the recognition of it is going to make it increase it's only going to increase when it's not acknowledged. I mean, That's we right. sort of we sort of talk about that all the time on here. Um, and I, I actually love the idea of having a chart up because it seems simplistic. But that, to me, is a big issue, not just with kids, but with parents, is the ability to first and foremost start to recognize your own feelings yep. and be able to name them. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then you're modeling for them. Right. Right. Too. About validation right. and then problem solving around that. You could do it with each other. You could just do it with yourself. You know, I'm like, okay, I can see you're pissed off. It seems really valid to me. I don't say that if I don't think it. Mm-hmm. If I think right. they're ridiculous, again, I'll be like, <laughs> okay, I can see you're pissed off. I mean, I don't want you to be in pain and I'm not going to sit here while you just retell this drama story over and over what do we want to do with this pissed off like i'll let them vent until they're repeating Mm -hmm. Mm because now they're just like perseverating in their own yuck like (laughs) i'm not gonna sit here and be your audience for drama like boring let's move to the problem solving like i don't want to hear about also your, your friend are fighting again this week like I'm not doing that, dude. Right. And also in some way when they're when they're going over and over and perseverating, they're rehearsing the the emotions 
over and over. Yeah. And it, it, it builds, you know, I was angry and I'm angry and now I'm angrier. Yes. And now, you know, the there, there's a rehearsal that's going New neural pathways. And now you're brainwashing yourself into that same reaction over and over, which is not effective and is not going to lead to you being happy. So I stop that. I call, I call some of that like verbal cutting. I don't let people say horrible things about themselves, themselves in my presence. I don't do that. I think that it is weirdly normalized people thinking and feeling terrible, terrible statements about themselves. I've never met so many smart, well-educated people that call themselves stupid when they make a mistake. Mm. That's verbal cutting. You have to get disciplined about how you speak to yourself. And if it's nowhere near what you would ever say to somebody else, you don't get to say it to yourself. Well, and it's like you said, I, I, I imagine right. that it's also a familiarity. It's like something that's kind of worked for you. And if you've never had someone step in, a parent, right. or in your yes. case, a professional, habit. which I mean, that's what's coming to my mind as I hear you talking is that, yeah, total habit. And, and even if it's a negative habit, if you have a familiarity with it, if you have a comfortability with it, you're going to go back to it because there's something that feels sort of in a weird yes. way comforting for you just because of familiarity yes it's not necessarily the most healthy or effective thing and that's what i'm trying to do you know like i teach them the skills while i'm trying to yank the frisbee out of the dog's mouth you know like nobody gives <laughs> up their defenses without a fight and sure. they don't right. know yet i okay i'm teaching you the skills but they don't know me they don't know that it's gonna work i do but they don't. So I have to, get, you know, offer it, not strong arm them into it. Be like, okay, well, that sucks. We know that pattern. So why don't you try this instead? And when they finally do try it, they get their own data. And then I got them. Then we're off and running. And they have more, um, they have more trust in the model and the skills in order to take risks and use more of them. You know, you, you talk about, um, you just talked about verbal cutting. I, I really, that resonated for me and, and it's kind of easy to see that that's been modeled, you know, I mean, as you said, so many super intelligent people will say, you know, I'm stupid and really destroy themselves and destroy their own ego, um, in the process. You know, what about, um, actual cutting? What about it? I, it's, it happens to be a special Oh yeah, I'm I'm just curious because obviously the verbal cutting is something that's role modeled in society. Um the actual cutting, I mean, it's certainly um in my experience kind of on the rise in young people. Why 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 do they do that? Well, first of all, I don't think it's on the rise. I think awareness is on the rise. Hmm. Okay. But I think that's that people fair. have been doing some form of it forever and finally we're talking about it. Much like child abuse. You know, nobody talked about beating their kids once upon a time, right. 50s, 60s, 70s, but right. now awareness has gone out. Do we think people just started beating their kids? No. So why do they do it? Um, well, there are some individual differences and some general reasons. I I have not worked with a kid or well or an adult who cuts themselves that doesn't have some ineffective ineffectively managed anger. There's usually rage mm. on board and 
it's an anger turned inward kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a locus of control thing. Uh, if I'm going to experience this much pain, at least I'm inducing it and I can see it. Uh, nobody that cuts themselves likes it. I mean, it is relieving in the moment, but they all kind of know that it's self-destructive and unhealthy and they're, they feel shame about but it. But it's hard. I imagine it's hard to, it's like any sort of bad habit, drugs or alcohol. They must be deriving some kind of relief from relief. the act. Yes, for sure. Otherwise they wouldn't do it. And then, then do you feel like if it's connected, it's obviously, you said connected to anger, you know, connected to a trauma. So then is it about for you as a professional, you know, working through that trauma with them in your practice that starts to alleviate that? Like, how does that, I have two questions about it, but the first question is, I guess, how, how do you help kids deal with that kind of situation? Well, excuse me bottom line is i give them something to manage the pain other than cutting that's what the emotional intelligence skills are they're effective and healthy ways to manage pain you know one of the one of the four modules in dbt is distress tolerance Mm -hmm. building your tolerance to distress and how do you ride that wave of very intense pain pain being anger fear sadness, whatever. Mm-hmm. And being able to name it in order to create that observer distance from it in order to make a decision that matches your values about how you want to treat it. That So that's part of, that's an emotional intelligence skill. That's yes. what you're kind of teaching is yes. sort of like in that moment, helping kids to recognize the feelings that they're going through, which you which said is, is kind the of mindfulness piece. Yeah, which is the first part. Um, so acknowledging it, and then, and I imagine it's like moving an iceberg. This must take a long time to develop, but then giving them the tools almost to step outside of themselves to say, like, hey, how do you want to handle this and what choices do you want to make? I would make? never and maybe say you can step make- outside of yourself because mm-hmm. I want them to have the agency around it, mm. just a little bit of distance from the emotional experience. So it's not like overtaking them. The naming it just puts it so where they can see it. It's just a perspective shift. You know, when you're in that, you have blinders on and you can't see anything past the end of your nose. So, you know, inches past the end of your nose is what you get when you name the emotion. But the mindfulness piece as you being able to recognize and name the emotions, the distress tolerance is like acceptance of the pain and how to ride it out if it's not going to kill you. And then the emotion regulation is exactly what it is. You name the emotion, you use skills to bring yourself back to baseline. Mm-hmm. And then it's the interpersonal effectiveness, which is this assertiveness training. So all these things All these four modules have skills within them that are more specific that help achieve the goal of the module. Hmm. So for cutting, there's a lot of emphasis on, you know, what are you doing now that isn't working? That's willfulness. How do we change that to willingness, which is radical acceptance of the pain Mm -hmm. in order to alleviate suffering? Pain plus the non-acceptance of pain. 
you know, so you can start to hear some of the mindfulness, some of the Buddhist stuff in there. What do you, I mean, and Julie, you can answer this too, and maybe it's an obvious question, because you're probably right. It's not that cutting is on the rise. It's that it's just more in the ether now. It's more talked about. It's more more recognized. You know, I've heard a lot about it coming out of the pandemic where kids have really been struggling psychologically. So if you're a parent and somehow figure out that this is going on with your kid, I mean, I imagine is, is the first step to call a professional. Yes. Like in that situation, yes, I imagine sure. you... Because it's gone on too far. Like if you're seeing it, it's not the first time. Hmm. So get them in to somebody ASAP. And though you're scared, I still say shop if you can. Like if if they're deep and they're very scary, you know, if you don't know, just get them into the ER and have an attending assess them. If you really don't know, just take them into the ER. If you think they're a danger to themselves, if they are, you know, dabbling, um, call, yes, call, you need, you need a clinician's eyes on the situation to assess the difference between suicidality and suicidal ideation and self-harm. Can you explain? So for me, can you, what are, what are, the, what's the difference there? What, what does that mean? What you just said, suicidal ideation? Well, I think anybody that's anxious enough obsesses and the end of the obsession road is going to be suicide. That's the, that's as far as you can go with obsessive thoughts, right? That's the mm -hmm. literal end. So it's not... It doesn't mean somebody's going to kill themselves tomorrow if they've thought about it and they have this obsessive trail that they go on. If mm -hmm. I see deep cuts on somebody, they're going to the hospital then and there. Um, or and it's not just cuts. Too. If, I see, if I see anything on the head, they have to go get their head literally examined. You know, like we can't mess around with the brain, that kind of a thing. Um but, you know, I also don't want to, I have never called the cops, even though I can. I don't like that kind of exchange. But I have had kids walk to the ER with me on the phone and have them hand it to the attending so that I know they actually they're, walk they're there. there. Right. We do make that deal. Sure. Um, but if I see anything deep that needs stitches, ER, obviously. Right. right. But I think just the the look of self-harm, the evidence on a kid flips parents out, understandably. Right. The You know, the yeah. fact that it has blood or like, ah, like hurting themselves on purpose. It's gnarly. It's scary. Yeah. Yeah, it's yes. Scary. It scares the shit mm -hmm. out of everybody, including <laughs> including professionals. Sure. Whoa, I don't want to touch that. Go to Dr. Kelly. You know, like... <laughs> Um, but the thing is, they want other skills. They just haven't been taught any. Right, right. Nobody right. wants to do that. It's in the absence of anything else that works. So give them something that works. Encourage them to try it. You know, attempt doing it. Tell them how within the context of their lives. Right. They're going to try it. And then they're going to get the data. And then they're going to try more things. And they just get exponentially more well resilient like confident 
because just that lack of the shame thing allows for us to build and that's an automatic win to take the to not hurt yourself when you normally would is something worth celebrating and i can authentically do like verbal cartwheels over that yeah i mean i imagine just that alone is a huge yes yeah Julie, are you, Julie, I'm sure, I feel like you've talked about the same thing. Is there anything you wanted to add to what Dr. Kelly has said? It's. Well, no, I'm, 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 I actually am going to approach with curiosity, um, which is something we talk about all the time. Dr. Kelly, do you think, are there common causes, um, societal, uh, parental, et cetera, that are creating this level of distress in kids today? Well, yes, yes. That's a great question, too. Wish more people would ask me that question. Um, I think that a sort of normalized repression of our emotional experiences, a lack of an emotions vocabulary and validation of it in general is a huge problem. And... Mm -hmm. Then I think that this wave of toxic positivity is encouraging mm. people not to acknowledge or certainly not validate and name anger. Mm. Mm. Anger is the emotion that tells us when our boundaries are being crossed. Who does it serve for us to ignore our anger? When I the look oppressor. at that, I mean, the right? patriarchy. <laughs> That's how I. Sorry, Greg. <laughs> That's okay. I get it. No, the, the patriarchy hurts Greg too. It's true. Dudes can are only like allowed to feel anger. That the one group that's allowed to do that and fear it yep. has this all kinds of judgments about like strength and weakness. It's bullshit. Sensitivity. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Feelings in general. Yes, yeah. it totally hurts all of us. We don't name our emotions. Um, you know, if you're a female identified person, you're fucking hysterical or crazy if you name emotions. Mm-hmm. I mean, the patriarchy trickles down into all of this, including, yeah. hey, don't ever be angry. For uh, <laughs> Imagine if women or female identified people of all ages got real about their anger, some shit would change. Yeah. (laughs) 100%. I think there are very, I teach this, there are very healthy and productive ways to acknowledge and voice anger to another person. Mm -hmm. There are super crisp and healthy and relationship enhancing ways Mm -hmm to deal with anger with someone you love or someone you work with or whatever. And people are just, they don't go near it. They immediately, their gremlin talks them in to believing that you're going to be like an explosive asshole and lose your job at work or something like that. That's bullshit. That's the fear talking about learning how to manage anger and people stuff it so much that they're on a time bomb ticker anyway, but the passive aggression is so much grosser than just saying, you know what? Please don't talk to me like that. That's pissing me off. Right, right. Yeah. That's pretty clean. 
And yeah. there were yeah. versions of that. Oh, I can't say that at work. Okay, well then say I would prefer you spoke to me at a lesser volume with a more respectful tone. Please. Yeah. Well, and I think also it's it's sort of like the recognition of feeling. It's the, the idea that somehow if you let that out, it's going to go on and on forever and you'll never be able to get it back. And and to be honest, the, the exact opposite is true yes. when you kind of can let out that steam valve a little bit. You're like, oh, I, I can yep. feel better. Now I've moved through this. Yep. And I understand it can take some work Especially if you, it's like all these other feelings, especially if you've never done it, if you've never totally. really dealt with it, it's probably going to be really explosive. And it sounds like you're, what you're saying too, is that a lot of that self-harm, and this is kind of obvious, but you know, obviously a lot of depression and anxiety can be stuffed down anger, right? And when we can oh finally start, it sort of connects to what you were talking about earlier is this kind of naming of feelings and having this flow of up and down that it's okay to have all of them and you kind of can move through them. A feeling is not a fact, as Julia yeah. said. Ooh, I if say you, that too, Julie. If you can move <laughs> through it. Um, I, wanted, I want to circle back for a second. So the first, and I want to talk about, because obviously you've talked about like if someone is in your practice, all of these tools you've mentioned, I could see how someone is working with you. Uh, kids, a kid, is, a child is getting healthier. So for a parent, let's say we have this parent that now we have the the list of feelings up on the refrigerator. Yeah. We're getting better at recognizing them cool. within ourselves, within our kids, taking the moment to validate those feelings. I think you talked about, and can a parent do this too? Is that, because you said you do this, can a parent do this too? Is the next step, okay, how do we problem solve? You're really upset about this, or or what? What would you say? What would you say to a parent? What What is the next step for them? Okay, you take you asking them how they feel, trying to get them to name the emotion is the best step because it's risky to do a validation statement to a kid and get it wrong. I still suggest you do it. Just be ready for them to be like, no. <laughs> of course. Um, I I have two teenagers. Yeah. I mean, we don't stay upset because that only tells me we're in the negative realm of it's not specific enough. You know, that upset could mean sad, scared, angry. So you look angry to me. You know, that, that allows for the guessing. You look or you seem pissed off to me. Yeah. What are we going to do about this? Julie, I feel like you're Julie, I feel like you're big on scripting, right? I mean, for a parent, have you said that in the past? I mean, yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that I find um, you know, Dr. Kelly is that, you know, in the heat of the moment, you know, when emotions are high, nobody's going to think very clearly about what to say or how to say it or whatever. So, I generally tell parents that unless it is a call to 911, right? And there are things that are calls to 911. Sure. If it's not a call to 911, then it's not a call to 911. Take a minute, take a breath, think about what you want to say, figure out what you think your child is feeling, and then circle back. You don't have to handle it all right this red hot minute. Definitely like, not. you know, you said with the, with the, with, you know, with dinner, I got dinner coming on the table, you know, things are going to burn you know what, this is not an emergency. I acknowledge that, you know, they're angry and frustrated and disappointed that they didn't get the lead in the school play or whatever. Yeah. 
And so how can I uh, effectively acknowledge to them that I get it? Yeah. Right. And sometimes it's done in a circle back, you know, during dinner, after dinner, the next day. Yeah. Strike while the iron's cold is what I call that. Mm, <laughs> right. Exactly. And, you know, I also, the scripting part, I encourage parents to actually sit down and write it out if they think they're going to forget, right? You can't so think write it, it up out, in the heat of the moment. People always think, oh, I'll come up with the best thing when I'm super pissed at my kid. That's no. <laughs> right. Have something on deck. <laughs> So you don't have to pick yeah. up anything. Yes. Hell yes. <laughs> Dr. Kelly, I, I want to ask you this. So I have a very close friend who's in private practice and she sees a lot of kids. And I'm just wondering if this is your experience that she finds that as the kids get healthier, she often will say to me, like, the kid's doing great. The parents are terrible. I need to get the parents in here. They need Julie's class. They need some skills. Is that something you run into in your practice? And what do you do in that situation where the child is having all of this growth, but the parents, unfortunately, are limited? Or do you do family therapy? Do you bring parents in ever? Hell no. I mean, I do. do (laughs) Okay, first thing. I don't do, I'm not in my private practice. I was in group practice for 14 years and private for another two. Then I started my company. I do eight-week courses of emotional intelligence skills training exclusively. So no practice anymore. I don't do psychotherapy anymore. Um, I just do the quick and dirty now, and they can go Hmm. do their lives. They can stay, too, but they don't have to. (laughs) Right. You know, you got intermediate and advanced, whatever. It's whatever you want to do, but you don't have to be in therapy for 10 years, you know? Right. So there's that. When I was in private practice, I brought parents in for emergencies, certainly, or when, you know, Mm -hmm. I often, oh God, the anxiety calls and like it cuts them off at three minutes. There are red flags for those of us who do this work. If a parent is letting it go the whole three minutes and then calling me back to finish up what they were going to say, uh, that's a red flag. If I get novels in text or email form, yeah, it gives me a read on where the parent's anxiety is. Um, what do I do about it? I write books. I write a parenting manual about cutting tell them everything I've learned in 20 years. I give them another book that tells them my eight week course so they can follow along with their kid without being in it because I put in the contract. I'm like, by the way, I mean, it's, it's more professionally spoken, but it's like (laughs) back off or I will stop seeing your kid and keep your money. Right. It's in the contract. So, So I I'm really this was my first question that we didn't get to and I feel like it's gotten answered. Oh, what? That but why you call yourself the punk therapist and what it feels like to me is that you're kind of non-traditional and can you, oh, so I guess of. I I wasn't yeah, so <laughs> so talk a little bit about that. Uh talk a little bit about that cuz that's I feel like you're taking all of this clinical knowledge that you obviously have and you have the, all these degrees and you're a PhD and and 
and what are you doing with that? Why are you the punk therapist and saying, you know, you don't necessarily need to go to therapy for 15 years. You're giving kids what in this in this eight week course is what you're saying. Yeah. Emotional intelligence skills like teach the kid to fish so they can go on the right. I actually think, you know, Christ, I wrote my dissertation in 06 about how DBT should be taught in high school as regular curriculum so that we can get ahead of the meds and all the diagnoses and all this bullshit patriarchy stuff. Preventative. If we're going to do the medical model, how about we do the preventative medical model instead of just funding big pharma with kids whose brains are developing? What the actual... Yeah. (laughs) Right. <laughs> I mean, that makes me nuts. So, I yeah, non-traditional, yeah, I would say that. Also, like, there is, the, mental health is problematic. It has the same isms in it that we're trying to get rid of in society. It pretends like it doesn't because, you know, so many female people are employed in the mental health field. That doesn't make the system not patriarchal. It is super white. It's super straight. Like it has all this crap in it. And I, you know, I, I believe in integrating and changing from within, but I'm not going to be a martyr either. Like I did it and I loved it. I loved it. And I could just see as the years went by what's needed instead and what the problems were and like watching for patterns and things like that and not watching for patterns and just having them slap you in the face. Kids, meds on a first, on a first meeting with the psychiatrist because, you know, parents don't want to pay that kind of money and walk out without a script too. So that's a problem. Even if the shrink doesn't want to give them, I mean, the system is a mess and I don't want to be a part of that system. And I have all this expertise. You know, I went into all the debt to get the knowledge, but it's the science of human behavior. Everybody needs this knowledge. The pandemic at least taught us that nobody has any emotional intelligence and they need it. So people flood the mental health system which is fucked up. That's my problem. It's great that awareness has gone up in society, but they're flooding a system that's super problematic. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. people are giving, you know, celebrities are giving tons of money to mm, foundations that don't work. They don't know better. I'm not blaming them. It's awesome that they want to give money to increase, but it's going to a system that does not work. So I wanted to... Yeah create something that I believe and have seen work over and over and over again. And so I had to get out of the system and make create your own a new one, literally. Yeah, that's yeah. scary stuff. But that's good modeling for kids too. Like if they're seeing me and I'm like happy and I'm myself. Right. And mm-hmm. I have degrees too you know like you don't have to work do the doctor worship thing with me but you know what doctors can have weird glasses and wear jumpsuits and have tattoos too you know they can not (laughs) be white too you know like 
We have to expand and diversify and not to meet some sort of, oh, I'm doing oh, diverse Black Lives Matter. No, it has to actually matter. You have to like behave in a way that's actually going to change some of these isms in the world. And I think the way to do that is to teach people to like themselves. Hmm. Happy people act right. You know, happy people don't hurt other people on purpose. They're not so insecure. They have to tear people down. That Those are unhappy people that are in that shame and fear loop that nobody mm. taught them to get out of. Like, happy people don't go looking for trouble. They don't self-harm. I don't know. I kind of figured just being happy and solid was a decent role model. Yeah. For people. Well, yeah. yeah. And also yeah. something to strive for. And it does not to be like me, to be the full version of themselves. We don't have to agree on anything, actually, because your values might be different than my values. The skills still work because you're applying them to your values. It's so cool, that whole thing. There's built-in respect and trust. There isn't like fragile doctor ego where I got to be right about everything and then charge you money for thinking I'm right and go home. Oh, I'm so smart. Like that's crap. That's doing harm. That's about you. It's It's supposed to be about them. Right. Yeah, for sure. So let me ask you. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. I, I don't know. We we a lot of times when we have these conversations with guests, and it's kind of hard to pare it down to one thing. But you know, if if we're gonna wrap up, what's the most important thing to you? Like, if you could give a parent like one little nugget or two. Sometimes it's hard to whittle it down, just because I feel like we covered so much great stuff. Um, I don't know. Is validation? Would you say that's the most important thing? Yeah. The get the get the emotions sheet and. Please, will you get it off my website? Not for my business, for you. These wheels have a lot of thoughts on them. Hmm. Attacked is not a feeling. It is an inference of your intentions and therefore a guess and therefore a thought. Happy, sad, mad. Attacked is not a um, Interested is not a feeling. Right. So these wheels and things out there are part of the problem. Fine, get the wheel. I don't care, but cross off the ones that have an evaluative quality that are clearly thoughts, guesses about other people's intentions are thoughts. They're not emotions. So get something useful on the fridge and just start practicing. It is really easy to just take that little step. And then you're going to start doing it in the heat of the moment where you never did it before because you'll have practiced it when the iron is cold. So just start integrating. How are you feeling? I feel like you're not listening. Yeah, that's not a feeling. Um, if you think I'm not listening to you. You may be frustrated. Feel? Yes. Right, right. Yes, I am listening to you. I simply don't agree. That doesn't mean I'm not listening right. to you. I don't feel heard. What heard and seen are not feelings, dude. Frustrated. <laughs> you 
know, mad, whatever, enraged. Right. Say whatever you want to say, but make it an emotion. You can be pissed at me. I'll live. So so let's let's wrap up. How do people how do people find you? Do you do online? I know. First of all, let's. Can you tell me the three? I I don't have them right in front of me. I know they all start with holy shit, which I love. <laughs> can you name the three books that you have that people can find? Yes. Uh, holy shit, my kid is cutting is the parenting manual. It's parenting manual for whether your kid is self harming or not. But let's be honest, they probably are, even if you think they're not or gonna. I'm sorry to say that you want to get ahead of that. Um, holy shit, I'm a gifted misfit is the eight week emotional intelligence skills training program that I do. I try to make cool. all my books as thin as possible so that they are accessible. You can listen to them too, which I highly recommend because they're funny. Um, And then the third one is, uh, holy shit, I'm dealing with a narcissist because we had an epidemic before COVID and it's called narcissism. Right. So um, I got super, that was actually going to be my first book um, (laughs) because it drives me crazy how People say it and they don't know what it is. It's not just a synonym for asshole. It is a multifaceted, (laughs) complex disorder. And it hurts the person and everybody. Um, And there's just very little empathy because of how much pain surrounds that. Um, So, again, effective ways of navigating that. I say at work, but it's really in life. Hmm. So mm. I have um, another one in editing. Uh, holy shit! What do women want? It's uh, for young males. Oh, great! To make to create love and partnerships. I figure since nice. straight white guys still rule the world, if I believe happy people act right, let's get them happy. Yeah, when they need some help, right? I love so that. Resources can be shared. I do think if everybody likes themselves. The isms just go extinct naturally. Sure, sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it makes perfect sense. And what's your website, Dr. Kelly? DrJJKelly.com. Everything is Dr. J- D-R-J-J-K-E-L-L-Y. Instagram, tons of free stuff. Fabulous. On Instagram, because pandemic, we just loaded it up with content. Great. Um, Good. The YouTube channel, um, oh my gosh, everything's just Dr. JJ Kelly. But it's all on the website. Great. So oh, we'll, great. We'll definitely, Perfect. it's on here, and we'll put it in the letter when we send this episode out. This has been, I mean, this has been hilarious, but it's also been awesome. <laughs> so so informative like i wish when i was a, I wish when i was a kid i could have come and seen oh, you god me too <laughs> i think that all the time oh my god you know but isn't that so healing to be for someone else what you always wanted and needed yes yes, yes. yeah and not that that's the intent but that's the really nice side effect yeah i'm sure yeah. i'm sure well, I appreciate your authenticity. I can kind of just feel it coming through. And it's, uh, we just really appreciate you being a guest. This was awesome. Thank you, too. I appreciate the space to, to speak passionately. It's, I don't, you know, I don't speak as much as I let other people speak. So this is just great. Thanks. Oh, Thanks good. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Parenting Horizons podcast. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please share with your family and friends. And if you'd like to hear more about Julie's work, join one of her parenting groups, or see about individual counseling, please visit ParentingHorizons.com. Or you can email Julie at julie.ross at ParentingHorizons.com. We'll see you next time.